Well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, maybe I'm the first to say happy Thanksgiving to you, but can you believe it's Thanksgiving already? How many? <laughs> wow, you really sound excited for Thanksgiving. Yeah. How many of you have? Uh, how many of you have gotten your turkey yet? Oh, maybe about a third of you or so. You know, they say, they say, you know, thaw that thing overnight in the refrigerator. Um, give it about four days. <laughs> or you'll be running that thing underwater in a rush on Thanksgiving morning. How, um, how do you guys pick out the best turkey? It's an informal survey, since I usually pick out the, the turkey. That's my Thanksgiving job. How do you guys usually pick out the turkey? I mean, I, what's that? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I can't hear. Um, what? The cheapest one. Okay, well, I, I can testify you can find them for 99 cents a pound at Costco. Uh, that's, yeah, that's pretty good. Don't go now. Three people got up to go get their turkey. Unless, unless you want to go the organic turkey route, that, that's going to set you back uh, three bucks a pound. Now, is that worth it? <laughs> uh, some, okay, so, you know, what is an organic turkey anyway? I sat there at the, the freezer section at, at Costco and I saw the organic turkeys and I saw the regular turkeys and uh, the Dutch in me took over and the 99 cents a pound was the one that... <laughs> And I thought, I wonder what the difference is. And then it dawned on me. I think the difference is organic turkeys actually used to once be alive. <laughs> Instead of the ones that come frozen. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I mean, I sat there like, now how am I going to pick these turkeys out? You know, I thought, what, do you thump on them like a melon? You know, and you, you know when you do stuff like that, there's peer pressure, the people around you, because they're looking at their turkeys, and so I thought, you know, I'll just start thumping on it like I know what I'm doing. So I like thump on the turkey, and this woman's like looking at me, and she started thumping on the turkey too. <laughs> yes! <laughs> but then my, my, um, uh, my, my, my favorite method of picking out the right turkey is you take that turkey, um, and, and like you do with a basketball to see if it's perfectly round, you throw it in the air and you spin it. I caused quite a stir at Costco. Sling, and, while, and, and you spin it because that's the, that's the one sure way that the turkey you're getting will be part of a well-balanced meal. I mean, <laughs> all right, let's talk about Esther, Pastor. <laughs> Um, I love Thanksgiving. I love this time of year, and I feel a little bit of it too, at least the initial reaction you all had. Uh, it's coming, that whole busyness that can rob, uh, unfortunately, the joy of uh, celebration that God really has in store for us. And so one prayer we can have is, boy, God, uh, create in me a sense with the presence of your Holy Spirit to uh, just unadulterated joy and thanksgiving and celebration this season. Thanksgiving it's sort, of, it's sort of the kickoff to like this, this long line of uh, parties and celebrations, isn't it? Right? Uh, there's family get-togethers. You get together with friends. There's concerts, including a couple here. The church puts on a Christmas tree lighting a Christmas party on the 9th. 
And then uh, you know, that goes right through till Christmas. So you have work parties. Uh, uh, most of your offices might have something for staff. And sort of extends right through New Year's Eve until finally we hit January. And we need the month to recover, right, from, from, from all of the celebrating. And um, all of that celebrating this time of year, it, it, it always reminds me uh, of one very important, very prominent, deeply theological, biblical truth. In fact, I don't know that there's one that's more emphasized, at least, in all the Bible. And that profound biblical truth is this. God loves parties. I was going to say God loves to party, but that kind of brings something along with it that... But he loves to party. He really does. God loves parties. And I don't know that that's proclaimed um, enough. I mean, check it out. God gave the Israelites, in fact, it's more than gave, God actually commanded the Israelites, get this, okay, you know, thou shalt, thou shalt not, and you know, we have that whole reaction to the whole law thing, but what we don't realize is that the law really in total, yes, it hangs on love God, love others, but just above that structural framework is a framework of seven big parties a year that God commands his people to throw. You don't throw a turkey, you th throw a party, God says. Seven of them. Don't you just love it? Don't you just love it that our God is a God that commands us to party? I picture the people at Mount Sinai hearing all the, the, the law coming down and, and hearing all these commands, and then I want you to party, and then a few weeks later, I want you to party, and then a few weeks later, party, and then I want you to party. And I picture them saying, what kind of awesome God is this? He commands us to party. Well, okay, I guess so. I mean, God is so amazing. Now, the, the parties in the Bible are called feasts, but they are without question parties. And I've got on the screen in a second those, those seven big parties that God commanded his people to celebrate every year. And you can see by the different colors of the, uh, of the months, the first four really run together. And yet it's a question of which month it falls in because God's calendar was a lunar calendar based on the moon, not the sun. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then the, the last three, they all run together in the fall, all of it surrounding uh, harvest time when people were in the mood to celebrate because, oh, thank God, uh, but for him bringing us life, bringing us food from the earth, we were doomed. And so seven times a year, God says, party. And that's not even all of it. You know some of these others too. Take a look at the other biblical parties that God commands. Sabbath is set to be a party. Did you, did you come to party this morning? Once every seven days, I want you to party. And then each and every month to bring in the new moon, there were sacrifices and feasting and parties. And then one year in seven, did you know, 
there was an entire, not just Sabbath day, but the whole year was especially emphasized and set aside to honor God and to uh, walk in communion with him. A Sabbath year. And then, every 50 years, there was this year of jubilee. And it was like, it was like the original uh, uh, bankruptcy court because everybody's debts were forgiven in the year of jubilee. You want to talk about a fresh start, which Rebecca just prayed about this morning. God loves a party, and that's not even all of it. Because God's people, they caught God's contagious uh, spirit uh, of loving a party, and so God's people in the spirit of things said, hey, uh, let's, let's do some more, because God obviously loves us to party, so woohoo! That's a deeply theological word, too. And so God added two more parties, or the people added two more parties on their own. As it turns out, the two they added bookended the seven ones that God commanded. You can see Purim, uh, uh, which we read of and we'll talk more about in Esther. And that's before Passover. And then following the Feast of Tabernacles is Hanukkah, the, uh, the Festival of Lights. Now, uh, those were historical events, events and, they, and they landed there even approximately historically, but it's interesting that it, they just so happened to land there, you know, to bookend those things, and, and God's people noticed, and they said, hey, what are we going to do in January and February? I know, let's party! And then, you know, well, what about December? It's kind of a long swing from September to February. Let's party! And so two more even that God's people um, added to what God had said. Incidentally, Hanukkah, now true or false, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. True, okay, you got it all right. I, uh, uh, most Christians, I think, would say, well, no, that's a, that's a Jewish thing. It was added later. Um, we know Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, also called the Feast of Dedication. We can read it in John 10. Um, celebrating uh, and remembering the, the rededication of God's temple that happened about 160 years before Jesus was born. And I haven't even mentioned yet, I haven't even mentioned those Jewish bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvah celebrations where a boy and girl come of age. And, and while those celebrations are, are, are more recent, they're only 400 years old, <laughs> only, the biblical precedent, precedent for uh, celebrating when a boy and a girl become a man and a woman is Abraham, who we read in Genesis 21 had a great feast when Isaac uh, came of age. And so, wow, lots and lots of parties celebrated by Israel and the Jews and God's people. And one thing, there are many things they have in common, but one thing in common that they all had, in fact, they're often called this, they're called feasts of remembrance because they all have in common, they remember. Every party dedicated to remember something and uh, some part of and uh, celebrating God's great love and great care and great deliverance of his people regardless of the tough times that would come and go. Hey, look at them, all of those 
parties. And they're spread throughout the year. The entire rhythm, even, of Torah that God sets for his people is framed, and the drumbeat, if you were, if you will, is celebration. And most of these celebrations lasted for days, even weeks, as the two groups of them would run together. Three of them required that you pack up your family and you take a, a, a road trip to Jerusalem and back. And you don't just hop a plane back in the day. It takes days to prepare for that kind of move and days to travel there and days to come back. And then by the time you get back, well, you better start planning for the next one. The rhythm of life that God gives his people was a regular and constant and revolving celebration a constant remembering of God's care and deliverance of his people, though tough times come and go. And this aside, before we get to Esther, we lost something, I think. When the Christian church decided that these parties didn't need to be celebrated anymore, we celebrate a few, have renamed them, but we lost the consistency from January to December, it seems to me. And it's a really odd decision that those church fathers made uh, long ago for the Christian church. It's, it, it's an odd decision to say that Jesus celebrated them. All the disciples celebrated them. The Apostle Paul did too. And when the church decided we won't any longer... Did we lose something of God's intended celebratory rhythm that he wants consistently for our lives? And what that does for us, and also what it does for our consistent witness of who he is, a God who loves a party. We also lost something while I'm on the subject when we went to the seven-day Roman calendar based on the sun. You know, uh, we know that it's a more precise measurement of time, and we just have to adjust it one day uh, every four years for leap year. But isn't it interesting that biblically God didn't intend for us to run our calendars that way? Maybe God purposefully had his people mark time according to the moon because it's an offbeat syncopated rhythm to maybe catch us more spontaneously or maybe to do what I just caught myself I needed done for me. I was looking ahead to spring break and, and wanting to plan something to do um, with Danny and our family. She'll be a graduating senior. And I was thinking of things to do that week and then all of a sudden I'm almost ready to finalize the plans and I look and the spring break week this year is between Palm Sunday and Easter. And I caught myself going, oh, why can't they just pick one day so I can plan on it? But am I really asking, why not just pick the one day so it doesn't interfere with the plans that I want to make. So maybe that's one reason why God said, hey, let's do it according to the moon. 
as a way to remind people like me that God's presence and God's planning and his frame for, rely, uh, for life take precedent over my plans. We've been, um, we've been looking at the book of Esther, and one key reason Esther was written was to explain uh, the origins of one of those parties. It's on the screen on the top. It's called Purim. And if you recall, after God delivered the Jews from Haman's evil plot to destroy them, the Jews celebrated for two days straight, and so on. For the last 2,000 plus years, Jews have celebrated Purim, where they read through the scroll, the story of Esther, actually perform it in kind of a vaudeville-type joyful atmosphere. Every time Haman's name is read, everybody goes, boo. It's like that vaudeville villain with the mustache. It's quite fun. If you've ever had a chance to celebrate Purim with some Jews like I did, do it. It'll crack you up. Such joy. And then as a part of Purim, they do what those Persian Jews also did on the very first Purim. They have a great feast. They exchange gifts, especially gifts of food, a symbol of provision of life and also an emphasis on giving to the poor. That name, Purim, has a very telling origin. It's from the word for lot, as in casting lots. It's easier for us to think of rolling the dice, maybe we might say. And that's because in the book of Esther, we read, we read that Haman cast lots. He, he, he rolled the dice to determine exactly the day and month that the Jews would all be killed. Now some have wondered, why on earth pick such an obscure detail in this amazing book of Esther um, to come up with the name of the festival, Purim? In fact, very early on there's evidence because 2 Maccabees talks about the day being called the Day of Mordecai. That sounds more, you know, the Day of Mordecai sounds a little bit more uh, appropriate. But at least by the time the book Esther was written to talk about what happened, it's called Purim, because we find that word in Esther, naming the celebration and the event. And maybe it's not so odd. Uh, here's the best guess as to why they chose Purim. We're told in Esther that the lots were cast. Haman and company rolled those dice in the first month of the Jewish calendar. And when the dice were rolled... They just so happened to fall on the 12th month as the month in which the Jews would all be destroyed. Now stop and think about that for a minute. What if those dice had come up for the Jews to be killed in the very first month in which they were in? Instead, the dice showed, no, the 12th month the furthest possible month away from the little rice, rice, dice rolling party that they had. So those dice coming at 12, coming up 12, what did that do for the Jews? It gave them time. As much time as possible to do all they had and for the story of Esther to unfold as she gathered up her courage and and the Jews fasted. It gave them all the time that they needed 
to get King Xerxes to pass that new law protecting the Jews. You see, those dice coming up 12th month, when they're being rolled in the first month, to Jewish eyes, indeed, in biblical eyes, that that didn't just happen on its own. The lots that were cast that day were anything but random chance. The outcome of those dice to a Jew was as certain as God's love and care for them. And so the name of the Feast of Purim reminds God's people that they can trust God. Even in the face of something that is seemingly random or out of their control, they can trust God. Even when someone else is rolling the dice to determine when you die. Because only God determines our fate, ultimately. And so Purim is is picked as one of those many details in the book of Esther that we've been talking about that had to fall in line just exactly right through which God kept his promise to his people. Now, when celebrating Purim as well as all the other biblical parties, including Sabbath day and all the rest, when celebrating these parties, as I've said, uh, God had them remember past deliverance, but always associated with remembering and being thankful for past deliverance, in the same celebration, they would also embrace experiencing that joy of the past. They would embrace it as a story of a prophecy of future salvation as well. That's why God's people remember his deliverance. That's probably a big reason why God wanted it constantly woven throughout the year in an offbeat manner that would make us pay attention to how he's constantly delivering us from evil. Jews would thank him not only for what he had done, but also to praise him in anticipation of what he's about to do. God did it before, and he'll do it again. You know, the stories are legion um, out of Nazi Germany and the concentration camps that uh, Jews huddled in little huts behind all the barbed wire awaiting the day of their destruction, which could be that night, could be the next morning, was coming at any time, their destruction in the gas chambers. Guess what the most common scroll read was? Esther. And I misspoke. It wasn't read because the Germans confiscated their Hebrew Bibles and were especially leery of the book of Esther. Gee, I wonder why. But fortunately, God's people had listened to God's command to write the word of God on their hearts, and so they knew Esther by heart. And so they huddled awaiting their day of destruction, reading the story of Esther, and remembering that God had done it before. God had delivered our people before. And by God, literally, he will do it again. 
And so here Thanksgiving and Christmas are upon us. A time of year to thank God. To thank God for doing it before, for delivering us before. And to praise him in anticipation for what he's about to do. God did it before and God will do it again. And, and this counts for the big picture idea of God delivering us, given Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Whoa. This covers big picture of God delivering us before, in the past with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and in the future when Jesus will come again and deliver us once and for all from all pain and all sorrow forever and ever. But it also covers the ins and outs of life, like the lives of those Jews in Esther and in so many Bible stories. And can we trust? Can we trust God to come through? Can we really roll the dice in trusting God? The book of Esther in Purim, literally the festival of the rolling of the dice, their answer is a resounding yes to that question. Yes, we can trust God with it all. Because God delivered his people from impossible circumstances before, and God will do it again, there is absolutely nothing random about it. Those Purim dice, they were loaded. <laughs> loaded in the favor of God's people, and today, guaranteed in the blood of Christ. And so when... Um, when we gather together with family and friends this Thursday, remember that God has delivered you just like he delivered the Jews in Esther in big ways through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'd, uh, I know in smaller ways too. In fact, uh, one thing you might try around the Thanksgiving table, I thought I'd see if our family would like to do it this year is Maybe go around the table and, and not just talk about things that we're thankful for, but maybe, maybe to take a little extra time and, and see if anyone, if everyone can share a time where they felt God really delivered them from something evil. And give thanks for that. And then, at the same table of thanksgiving, and Christmas. Take time to look at the future, to anticipate when Jesus will come again and God's deliverance will at long last be fully realized forever and give thanks for that because God delivered his people before and God will deliver his people again. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who, despite circumstances that might tell us otherwise, never forgets us and is always with us, loving us, protecting us, 
giving us strength and courage and power and humility and grace. Father, keep the devil from pushing circumstances of life, tough circumstances of life, up into our eyes so that we can't see any longer your everlasting and consistent love. Help us to trust and to persevere in the light of your loaded dice deliverance that is on the way. Father, we love you. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction this morning? If you can turn and, uh, and face me and thereby face your brothers and sisters, you can even wave across the aisle. Hi. This morning's benediction comes from the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. And he's addressing their concerns because they've heard just how much suffering that he's had to endure. And in giving them reassurance, Paul gives the church these words. Indeed, we felt like we had been given the sentence of death. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from dire peril, and he will deliver us again. In him we have placed our hope that he will continue to deliver us. In the name of Jesus, amen? Amen. Happy Thanksgiving, West Bulls. We'll see you next week. God bless you all.